Welcome to another episode of Gray Area. After a change in guests and several delays, I finally got a chance to talk with Solomon Jones this week, a progressive from Yuma, Arizona. Solomon and I discussed everything from his role as the director of coalitions with the Young Democrats of Arizona to more controversial topics like the slogan, defund the police. Here's our conversation. Hey, Solomon. Welcome to the show. How's it going? Pretty good, Jacob. How are you? How are you doing? I'm doing pretty good. Yeah. Life's good at the moment. So yeah, well, thanks for being on the show. Um, I know this was kind of random. Last week I reached out, but I'm glad you, you can be here. So. Oh, no. Thanks for having me. You know, It's a real pleasure. I'm, I'm glad I've, I've had the opportunity. Great. So yeah, before we kind of get into talking about the Young Democrats of Arizona, which you're a part of, and even kind of some of the internal debates, I guess, if you want to call it that within the Democratic Party. um, Can you just give a little background about yourself so listeners know a little bit about you? Yeah, so I've kind of been an organizer since I just I came out of high school. Um, I remember I was involved in a group called JSA. Maybe some people listening to this might be familiar with. Um, It's sort of like a youth engagement and debate uh, society. Oh, nice. And and I found myself in that. And then later on, uh, somebody from somebody who's a local organizer with the Arizona Democratic Party came up to me and asked me if I I wanted to apply for an internship. And I said, sure, because it was like basically the first work I'd ever done. Um, and that's kind of how I got started. And I, um, was working in 2016 for the general election campaign, um, trying to get people in Yuma County to vote for Hillary Clinton. And while that one, I mean, we didn't, we obviously didn't really have the result that we wanted, um, electorally that year, it sort of motivated me. Um, the person who really motivated me to get into politics was Bernie Sanders, Oh, nice. um, the person who I initially supported in those primaries. But of course, you know, I, I had thrown my weight behind the general election. Um, and then later on, uh, once that was over, I went to community college here in Yuma. And I started a, or I helped start a chapter of Our Revolution, which is an organization that Bernie Sanders actually started oh. um, here in Yuma with, with a friend of mine, Brian Rasmussen, who is also an organizer with the Democratic Party. And after that, I sort of rolled it into my work with the Young Dems and Flagstaff, um, which is how I got introduced into the Young Dems of NIU. That's sort of where I, I came, my, I became myself politically, you know. Um, I started interning with the Coconino County Dems. Um, and I, I really developed a social group around that. And then eventually, you know, as I made my way up in studies, I kind of became who I am today. You know, I was really active in the 2020 election. Um, Of course, supporting the same person in in the primaries, Bernie Sanders, and then throwing my weight behind uh, Joe Biden when I was working with Swing Left here in Arizona. And so now I serve on the e-board of the um, Young Democrats of Arizona for the director of coalitions. So that's a little bit about, you know, kind of how uh, I got my way in politics. I, I did not know it started back in high school. So no, that's cool kind of to see kind of the road you've taken just uh, 
you know, now you're out of college and everything. So yeah, no, it's interesting. And with the young Democrats of Arizona, I think people can tell it's a group of young people who are Democrats, but what, what is the goal of the organization? Right. Well, I mean, the, the main obje- objective of the Young Dems of Arizona is to really galvanize young people in our state to become political, to sort of form. And the, the social aspect of the group is kind of our secondary concern. Our, our primary concern is organizing um, and working with our uh, Democratic Party affiliates here in the state. However, the social aspect does play a big role in it. A lot of people find a lot of fulfillment. Um, being members of our chapters across the state and we do kind of help people develop themselves in ways of how to sort of organize how to advocate for themselves how to advocate for young people within uh, the democratic party so that i mean that that's kind of our overall purpose of course you know it evolves over time as, as it needs to but generally that's kind of what we do yeah for sure and no matter what people are, I guess, fighting for or kind of, you know, um, rallying behind politically, people never really think about it. But it, I don't know, the way I see it, it all starts with organizing. So, no, that makes sense for sure. Right. Um, you know, I, I think there's an interesting, like, sort of difference between being an organizer and being an activist, even mm-hmm. though those are two things that we really want people to be. Um you know, activists rally behind sort of specific causes, whereas organizers tend to sort of build the framework and bring people together. Um, and that, and we're really looking to build both in the Young Dems. You know, and another thing that the Young Dems do and that we're trying to sort of do now is, is more advocacy. Um, we're, beca- we're becoming a more socially just organization. We're really focusing on social justice issues on disadvantaged peoples. Um, that's something I think we we really take pride in. Yeah, no, for sure. And you kind of explained it when we talked um, last week, just briefly, but you've mentioned um, this evening already that you're the coalition's director for the Young Dems of AZ. Can you kind of describe what you do as a coalition's director? Right. So what I do as the director of coalitions is uh, sort of try to bring all the voices I can um, into represent into being represented in our group. One of the, the sort of colloquial terms for what I do is the diversity director. Um, I kind of ensure that we are making sure that we're taking everybody into account. I handle quite a bit of outreach when it comes to sort of building, well, as it were, coalitions within the party, making sure that I'm getting input from all the sources that I can. Um, and in, in addition, I work in conjunction with our political director, John, and we kind of work on, you know, what uh, platforms we need to be supporting, how to build our platform, and, you know, what we can be doing to effectively advocating for young people and making sure everybody is represented at the table. For sure. You know, a big part of, and you've already mentioned it, but a big part of getting, you know, make sure everyone is being advocated for with platforms and stuff is you got to get groups that are not always represented, kind of like, um, and I think we saw this in 2020 in AZ at least, um, where you had kind of a, you know, Biden and Harris won, um, Mark Kelly won, Democrat um, for the Senate. It was 
And I think a big part of that was you saw a lot of Latino support on um, the Navajo nation really turned out, which I don't know if that gets enough press, but there were all these groups that really kind of, I think put them over the top because they didn't win by much. So I'm wondering, you know, since your role kind of goes into that, at least to getting everyone's opinion and trying to get policy behind that and, you know, the democratic party to speak for everyone, what do you think the democratic party did well in Arizona that kind of got all these groups really energized? I think the Democratic Party in Arizona um, was able to tap into Arizona's actually rather complex political palette. Um, I think that there is no real, what's the, what's the word? There's no monolith when it comes to Arizona politics, when it comes to our communities. Um, you know, we did see a lot of support coming in from our indigenous communities um, and the Latino community here. And also, you know, in our urban areas, but um, Arizona is, I mean, we're a complicated state. Um, we have an interesting culture. You know, people have varied interests. Um, I think one thing that people will see when they sort of analyze how things went in Arizona in 2020 was people tended to vote for Democratic federal representation. So our congressional delegation and our obviously our senators and as well as, as uh, President Biden. Um, but a lot of people ended up voting for Republicans at the state level and some more Republican measures because a lot, you know, people do have complicated political interests. Um, I think the Democratic Party was able to sufficiently convince people that uh, voting for Donald Trump was not in our interests, um, that voting for Republican Senate was not in our interests, um, you know, that Mark Kelly was the right decision. And, you know, Mark Kelly was, I mean, like, uh, you know, I, I really like that guy. I think he's done a really good job in the Senate. And I really enjoyed being able to sort of help in, in whatever little way I could to get him elected. Um, and I think uh, we also had a really dedicated base of people here in the state. We're, you know, we have a lot of really great uh, organizers, um, you know, people up and down, volunteers, uh, fellows, all of our uh, full-time staff members that are sort of handled by the ADP or Arizona Democratic Party, I should say. So really up and down, you know, we had a lot of really skilled, mobilized people. We had a lot of um, people who were willing to listen to our message. Um, and I think it generally went well for, for us, that cycle, especially as compared to maybe what the past was. Yeah, for sure. Um, and I, you know, I think you brought up a good point of how Arizona is pretty complicated politically, like because immediately when someone looks at Arizona, they say, well, wait a second. A lot of uh, people in the Latino community turned out for Biden. You go to Florida, it kind of flipped a little. And yeah, yeah exactly. So, yeah, it's, it's I mean, it's very different wherever you go, you know, and I think one thing people notice, too, is a sort of a comparison you could make is in Texas. Um, where the Latino community at the border actually didn't swing for Biden. A lot of people were surprised by that, um, that Biden didn't perform as well with uh, Latino people in, in Texas and Florida. Of course, in Florida, there are a lot of more complicated issues at play. Um, I think people might be familiar with that led to him not performing very well. But, you know, that's, that's yeah. neither here nor there. <laughs> No, for sure. That 
that gets into a whole nother, you know, Cuba and socialism and a lot more than that too. That's kind of a broad brush too. Yeah. Um, but yeah, no, there's, there's a lot there. And I think kind of one of the more interesting parts of your, um, your role with the young Democrats of Arizona is how, you know, you're the director of coalitions. So this idea that you're supposed to, you know, it's not solely on you, but you're kind of overseeing all these groups of people in the party and you're kind of, you know, bring people, see how you can bring people together and how the party can represent all these people. And you think of like people from AOC to Biden and a lot of other figures, it seems like it would be, you know, very difficult. So what is, what has it been like to try to, you know, form these coalitions of people that are very different and, People within the party have a lot of different views. Uh, you know, I think um, people have generally been pretty receptive. Um, I think people are interested in hearing uh, what young people have to say, um, you know, working with the young Dems. I would say that in Arizona, we do have all of the spectrum of the party sort of represented and you know, we do have like a lot of people identify Arizona as a more of a centrist state, right? And there are a lot more uh, sort of centrist liberal people, I think, uh, that exist within the party that um, I've had the opportunity to speak with, um, and we've we've definitely agreed on a lot of issues. Uh, you know, for me personally, I identify myself more on the the far left of the party, um, and you know, obviously, it's easy for me to speak to people. Um, who also exist on that far left sort of end of the spectrum. But I think, you know, part of what I do is I, I, I do try to uh, make it less challenging, even though, you know, it, it, it'll always be challenging for people who have uh, different views to, to sort of hear each other out on a lot of things. But I, I, I try my best to sort of make compromise with what people want, you know, I think that the Young Dems of Arizona were definitely a very identifiably uh, progressive organization. Um, that's something that we take pride in. And I think that uh, generally the things that we advocate for are things that we've reached a consensus with here in Arizona within the democratic uh, sort of space. But, you know, there, there are still plenty of points of contention that um, I always like to talk with people about. Um, especially on sort of a community level, because a lot of communities see some of these pol some policies and say, ah, well, you know, generally speaking, the way that we feel is this might not help us as much. Um, and I have to listen to a lot of people and uh, sort of consider uh, their points of view and, and, and bring that to the young Dems for us to sort of, you know, uh, rethink about what we're doing. Yeah, for sure. No, if uh, I don't know if more people in the country had to kind of have your job um, and listen to people a little more, may maybe we would be in a, um, you know, less divided state at the moment. But no, yeah, I, I'm sure it's pretty interesting, especially like you're saying, when you don't, you know, agree with more moderates or centrists on everything, but you can still find areas where, yeah, we, we agree here. Um, right. And, and I think, you know, now um, the political atmosphere in the U.S. is very easily identifiably toxic um, and polarized. 
Um, and, you know, me speaking is sort of, I guess, in my partisan capacity, it, it sounds like a, maybe a contradiction uh, for me to, to come up and be like, oh, well, you know, we should all work together and, and talk as one. But I mean, the reality is, is, is as a country, um, for us to remain politically stable, we have to be willing to sort of hear each other out um, and not, you know, be so galvanized on every little thing. Yeah, no, for sure. And, and you kind of said you you're kind of on the, you know, farther left part of the party and the organization is more progressive. Um, and there's some pride in that. So I'm curious what you make because, and maybe I'm reading it wrong, but from what I've seen with the party, I guess more nationally, it seems like there's this kind of push and pull. You have a desire, especially in 2020, everyone, in the Democratic Party was like, okay, Trump, he needs to go. But so there was that desire, well, let's beat him. Before we worry about who, let's make sure who we get, you know, can beat him. And a lot of people were like, okay, that's Biden. Um, he can get people from, you know, the more moderate um, people that maybe aren't too partisan, they can swing to him, we can get Trump out of there and then get some policies in. But there's also this desire to get like, you know, progressive figures that inspire, you know, young people and maybe get more people in the party. Um, so I don't know if you notice this kind of push and pull that I'm talking about, but um, I'm just curious, like, what's the best answer to that? Like, because, you know, you can't keep doing this forever, I would think, but who knows? I, I definitely do recognize it. Um, and, you know, that, that kind of ties into the idea that America and our political um, climate and our political economy is becoming much more galvanized. Um, I think that generally there is a leftward push within the Democratic Party. Um, for most of the Democratic Party's existence, it's existed sort of as a centrist, uh, moderate liberal party uh, in, you know, opposition to the right-wing um, hyper-capitalist alternative um, of the Republican Party. Um, I think, you know, within the global context, the, the Democrats would be definitely identified as, as centrists. And now, you know, you have a generation of people who recognize sort of the decays that hyper-capitalist um, sort of right-wing policies that have been enacted by presidents like Reagan um, and the Bushes have led to, you know, deregula deregulation, uh, breaking down our country's labor unions. You know, all of this has led to sort of a decay in what we might consider to be late stage capitalism. Um, and this generation of people is starting to, starting to recognize that and recognize the benefits that we've seen, you know, across the world when it comes to maybe building a more worker centric economy when it comes to being able to provide healthcare to everybody that, you know, healthcare is a human right, um, that housing is a human right, that climate change is an imminent threat. And, you know, I think, I think now people really um, are beginning to see the obvious and, and uh, drastic effects of climate change. You know, you've seen flooding throughout the world uh, just recently in these past couple of weeks uh, in China and Germany in Flagstaff, even, uh, there's, there's a viral video of a Prius uh, floating down a, a, a neighborhood street. Yep, yep. Um, 
Yeah. And I'm like, I, I remember watching that and being like, I feel like I may have canvassed that street. Oh, <laughs> so it's, it's, it's starting to come home. And I think people are really starting to see that, you know, we need to be the hyper uh, cons- consumerist, you know, un- unlimited growth of our sort of uh, extraction and, and consumption of resources um, is not going to work. And it's not going to lead to, to habitability for us or future generations. Um, and that's really galvanized, I think, a lot of people who have become political within recent years and people within the Democratic Party to, to push uh, sort of to the left on a lot of issues. Oh, yeah, for sure. And, um, and I'm glad you brought up the global stage because I've always found it almost amusing um, when you compare like the U.S. to Europe in general, like, uh, you know, a liberal in the U.S. is not seen as really that liberal or in Europe, they're not seen as that liberal. It's very weird because, you know, I've lived here all my life. You only see it like this. And then you look around and you're like, wait a second. Um, You know, people see things differently, even what is left and what is right. If you, you know, go a few thousand miles east or west. So. It's pretty right. remarkable. And, and I think the, the American political dialogue has been tainted for years, um, sort of in a, in a right, rightward Overton window because of maybe some of the back effects of the Cold War and the ways that people sort of tried to demonize um, socialism throughout our history because uh, socialist governments throughout the world have stood against American interests and American imperialism. Um, and therefore hurt the upper class here in the United States. Uh, And so, you know, as a byproduct, our political dialogue has sort of been tainted with the idea that we should forever remain, you know, super capitalist, and then that uh, the means of production should always be in the hands of uh, shareholders, you know. Uh, So, you know, you brought up, climate change was a big thing especially when you talk about that video i remember seeing it um just with knowing about nau and seeing the prius flying down the road um you know i guess being swept down the road with the water but so you know that's a big issue for um you know the world and especially for the democratic party it's really become the democratic party one of its key you know we're going to take a stand on this the Republican Party has had a mix of, you know, denying it or kind of downplaying it. And some would say the Democratic Party's done the same. But especially now, there's this big push. You know, we need we need to get some legislation through or what's the point of, you know, getting Biden in office if we don't get anything more than we had before. But a big, you know, reason that's not happening is the filibuster. And that's where you see this big split between moderates and progressives about what should happen with the filibuster. Should we have it? Um, So what do you think? Should it be ended or not? I think it absolutely should be done away with. Um, I think it's a Jim Crow era tool meant to keep sweeping reforms uh, sort of out of the government. Um, I would say that, you know, we've obviously a lot, there's been a lot of attention um, on a certain somebody here in Arizona uh, who will not stop defending the filibuster. 
Um, I think that there's certainly been a consensus within uh, pretty much every circle of the Arizona Democratic Party that I've uh, been around in that this filibuster should be done away with, um, that it is ultimately hurting us. Um, it is not going to enable us to make any of the forms that we want or enact the For the People Act um, or to protect voting rights. And at the end of the day, it's just going to enable the uh, control of the minority over the Senate because you need 10 people to break it. Um, and right now, you know, obviously the Senate is a 50-50 split if we're including the uh, independents who caucus with the Democrats. And, uh, you know, it's, it's a vir which makes it virtually impossible to get any major piece of legislation through unless um, you have 10 Republicans uh, to support it. Yeah, no, exactly. And like you said, from just what I've seen, I think I agree with when you say, you know, this idea that, that the filibuster should be abolished. It seems like the majority of people in the Democratic Party agree with that sentiment. And, you know, especially now that they actually have, um, you know, control over all three branches, the Senate, very slim. So is the House, actually. But, you know, there is they're in power. So a lot of people do agree with that. And I'm just going to list some of these out for kind of the listeners, because there are a lot of arguments and you brought up a lot of these and allude to them as well with why, you know, there shouldn't be a filibuster. And a lot of them are fairly sound. Um, you know, a lot of people point to, you know, the filibuster is not something in the constitution. It's, it's not something the country was founded on. And, it's pretty much just been used by both parties to obstruct the one from doing much. But this is especially the case with Republicans. Vox did some reporting um, and not just them, but they're kind of the source I look to on this. And, you know, it's a 50, 50 split. So people might think, well, the, when the Republicans filibuster, it's the same as the Democrats because they're just obstructing for half the country. But the, the thing is, the Republican senators represent 20 million less people. Um, so that gets into something else entirely. But the point is that when, you know, when the GOP uses a filibuster, it's very effective for them because it almost implies there's kind of this equal representation there of them. They're just obstructing like the Democrats for their constituents. And that's about half the country, which it's not. If, we got to be honest about it. And, you know, like you pointed out, it's currently it's being used to block the voting rights bill as well as it's been, it's also been used to slow down infrastructure, which everyone pretty much agrees we need, whether they agree on how we pay for it. Um, and police reform, which has also kind of come to a standstill because you don't have that bipartisan agreement infrastructure, Maybe we have a breakthrough. Um, I'm not sure yet. Maybe. We're, we're, we're still kind of holding our breath there. There's a lot of ifs and ands, uh, especially because of that uh, one senator from Arizona who will, again, remain unnamed. Um, so. Yeah. No, it, and I think it just kind of shows um, whether people like the filibuster or not, you can point directly to that and say, this is why this is all taking so long. And it's the truth. Maybe it should, um, but it is the reason why these things are dragging on for months. 
you know, I just listed all these sound arguments. So I understand your perspective, but there's also this other perspective people have, and they're going to point to just the practicality of getting rid of it, where right now you can pass voting rights, you can do all this stuff, climate change. But what if you're not in power? Because, you know, Mitch McConnell, if you just look at him when he's been in power, he, you know, rushed through federal judges, the whole thing with the Supreme Court, where he kind of, you know, said to Obama, we're not letting that you have a year left, we're not confirming him, Trump had a month left, we'll confirm the justice. So when the guy's in power, it's not always ethical, but he gets done what he wants. So he got done with all the judges. There's no filibuster for those anymore, which is worth knowing as well. So yeah, that and at this point, like I mean, that's that's kind of um, an argument that's been used um, by the particular people who uh, are in power who want to keep the filibuster. Um, is that at the end of the day, even if we're able to pass through reforms? Um, things are just going to get worse down the line um, because we probably won't have 10 democratic votes to block it. And my answer to that to be, would be, it's, it's a lot better to have protections for one election cycle and to have universal health care um, in, in a hypothetical situation for five years than it is to have them for zero um, at this rate, you know? Uh, and at the end of the day, power will always switch it's it's all the thing with politics people generally understand um is that it works on a pendulum pretty much all the time where if you have a period of rightward shift like you saw in the last four years it's going to swing back around and another party is going to come into power and then eventually the pendulum's going to going to swing back um, and this is the main thing a lot of people are really worried about, um, is that when it does end up swinging back, they're going to come back even harder at us. Um, and I certainly understand that concern. You know, I think that in the current political climate, it really does worry me about what the Republicans will try to do since they have, you know, consistently shown that they're willing to impede elections so that they can win. Um, and sort of, I guess, try to, I, I, I think the word rigging is really overused, but in this case, it, it's true. Um, a lot of Republicans are genuinely trying to rig the elections to where um, if the legislature is like the person in power, they can give it to the courts or decide, or just this decide the, uh, the electors themselves, which is something that they're trying to do here in Arizona. And to that, I would say that quicker action is what will prevent that because they are well organized enough uh, to where they're making those moves slowly in the first place. Um, you know, the thing that I think has the point, a point that's been made about the Republicans as compared to the Democrats is that to the Republicans, power is the end. Whereas I think to a lot of Democrats, uh, power is a means to the end. Um, in, in layman's terms, um, essentially that means that the Republicans are going to try and gain power no matter what. And I think a lot of Democrats um, are sort of getting the idea that we need to move a lot more fast, uh, faster and a lot more aggressively uh, to stop that. And that's why we need to end the filibuster so we can capture that window of time 
uh, to make those reforms. However, as time goes on and is, uh, you know, I'll just say their names, Kirsten Cinema and Joe Manchin, uh, refuse to budge on the filibuster, that window is going to close and 2022 is going to come around. Um, and historically, midterms are very rarely ever good for the ruling party in any context. Um, so I, I think it, it's a danger that I, I think people should be aware of. Um, and I think it's something that um, those two senators uh, really need to keep in mind if they are interested in protecting our elections and keeping the Democrats in office uh, through the next election cycle. And I understand the point you're making because this idea, you know, the Republicans are ruthless. If they get in power, they're going to make, um, they're going to do so much more than we did with no filibuster to block them. But what you're saying is pretty much, well, okay, maybe, who knows, but it's better to, you know, be able to pass all this stuff that we want, um, even if it's for a few years, then never get it done and always be obstructed, you know, by pretty much people in the Democratic Party. It's not even Republicans. I mean, it is, but that's not the reason the filibusters being is still in place. It's two Democrats. And also to that point, because I think some people also will say, and if we do in the filibuster and we pass all this stuff, then people will actually start voting more for Democrats because we're doing all this. Do you agree with that? I mean, I would generally say that um, I think the Democrats would perform a lot better um, if they were to, I mean, that not that that's necessarily the, uh, primary motive, um, even though that's kind of how it's made out to be by a lot of Republicans, that the whole point of this is to get more Democrats elected. Um, the whole point of this is to get more people to vote. Now, uh, typically, the more people that vote, the better Democrats do. So maybe as a byproduct of this, the Democrats will do better. Um, and, you know, that can be a motivation for a lot of uh, more partisan people. Um, and that's all well and good. But the end goal here, the end game is to get more people voting. You know, people, everybody over the age of 18, um, and a lot of people would even say that potentially we could look at uh, having people 16 and up vote. And that's something I think we should, we would be able to consider at some point in time. But everybody uh, in this country who is eligible, who is an adult and a citizen, uh, should have the right to vote and should be able to easily ex exercise the right to do so um, wherever they are um, in whatever manner possible. And uh, Republicans are trying to stop that because that's inconvenient for them. Because when that happens, their candidates lose. Yeah, no, I understand what you're saying. Um, and kind of the next thing, and this is another where there's this big fracture in the party um, where you have, you know, moderates and progressives do not agree here either. And more generally, I'm going to refer to it as how the party brands itself and its ideas, which makes it sound like marketing. But I think you could argue that politics is kind of like that at times. Um, you know, Republicans with their slogans and sayings and whatever you want to call it, they have a lot of you know, patriotic buzzwords like America first makes, you know, they include America in there. Um, a lot of, you know, slogans in that vein and Democrats, um, a lot of their slogans, one in particular, which I'm going to get to have 
gained attention, but kind of for the wrong reason. Like they've gained more attention than the actual ideas that the slogan's about. Um, and the one I want to talk about is defund the police. CBS had a good piece in March of this year, actually, um, pretty much explaining what it is. So defund the police, this idea that, you know, maybe we should cut a little bit of the police department's budget so we can pay for, you know, social workers or people to help. If someone's having a mental health crisis, you don't bring cops with guns, you bring a social worker so no one gets hurt and stuff like that. Um, And at its most extreme there are calls that say defund the police and we we want to abolish the police entirely we want to completely defund them i guess is a way to put it um but i don't know i just maybe i'm not understanding it correctly but it seems weird to have like a slogan that can be so easily misconstrued as like meaning the extreme whenever it's used um what do you think yeah, you know, I, I think you make a great point about it being a slogan that can be very easily twisted to mean something that it doesn't. Um, I, you know, I think on the face of it, it might not be immediately clear to people that the whole point of people trying to reallocate resources away from the police um, and into social housing um, and to expand it, social workers into better health care uh, for the community and, and getting homeless people off the street um is that like oh we know we just want to deconstruct the police department and ultimately that isn't the end goal i think that the whole point of the movement is to address the disease rather than the symptoms people who are proponents of you know more expanded police control uh giving more uh resources to the police than they already have are interested in addressing the symptoms of the problems you know, violent crime at its heart is caused by people who are unable to get help um, for their, you know, mental health issues that they might have, unable to provide for themselves. So a lot of them, you know, they, they get into deep pits. Um, and, uh, you know, I'm not, I'm by no means my forensic expert on violent crime. Uh, so I'm not going to, I'm not going to make the case here that we should just get rid of the police. You know, I, I understand why the police exist, um, you know, as somebody who has had experience in social work. Um, I have had to work with the police on a couple of occasions. And I recognize that in a lot of situations, they are definitely necessary. You know, but I think that being able to address the issues of homelessness and of people being able to keep their heads above water financially and being able to easily access mental health services and medicine that they need, that we wouldn't have people falling into having to get involved with black markets to make their living, uh, with people, you know, uh, having mental health crises that may lead to violent episodes, and you know, with people having to commit crimes to try and feed themselves. Yeah, no, um, actually, the first guest I had on kind of spoke in the same vein about a lot of these issues in terms of, you know, let's get to the root of the problem instead of putting a bandaid on it. Um, I guess right. I- and ultimately giving the police more guns is just putting a bandaid on the problem that if we're being totally honest, just leads to more bleeding, um, you know, over, I mean, obviously everybody's seen over the past summer, 
in 2020, we had a reckoning in this country of uh, police violence, you know, uh, with the killings of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, among many, many others that are ultimately countless. You know, I mean, in, in the United States, we have a, a, a higher rate of police violence than anywhere else in the developed world, um, you know. So it, it, it's, it's something that desperately needs to be addressed. Um, and I think that it is worth reallocating resources away from the police in order to achieve sort of those root causes um, while still maintaining a functioning um, and stable police force in the instances they, they are needed um, to address problems. And so, yeah, we've been talking about, you know, defund the police. It almost sounds like something you would hear in an attack ad instead of something you would hear by someone like saying, let's do this because of how easy it can turn into, you know, no police, which some do mean that. But as we've talked about, that's not really the case most of the time. And, and I understand certainly where a lot of people are coming from um, in terms of uh, police abolition. You know, I, I setting aside, I mean, my personal opinion, um, I certainly think that maybe it's something that as a larger society we could strive for in the future. I don't know that it would be necessarily practical to implement within our lifetimes at this point in time. But that's, you know, that's just one person's uh, assessment of it. So, I mean, you know, I welcome any, any other point of view on that. Yeah, no, for sure. And it seems to me that this slogan, as well as progressive messaging, for example, Bernie Sanders, um, a self-proclaimed socialist, democratic socialist, I, I should add, to be fair to, you know, I know a lot of his supporters would probably get mad if I didn't include that because he included it. So it is a distinction. Um, so democratic socialist, and I don't know, a lot of people are going to say, well, look at this slogan and look at someone running for office saying socialist. They might say, you know, I agree with both of these ideas, but the issue is that the messaging is so bad that it turns off half the country before they even know what Bernie was standing for, or even what this slogan actually was advocating for. So do you think there's like a messaging problem with, you know, a lot of progressives or no, I'm just. Well, I, I do think that there are certainly um, aspects of our messaging that can be improved upon. I think that um, again, socialism being a dirty word in this country uh, in terms of our political economy has sort of, is something that's sort of been invented uh, by the ruling classes, because in, in the context of most of the other countries, it does not take on the same meaning that it does here in the United States. You know, I identify myself as a democratic socialist. Um, I think that in our political discourse, we should be educating people about what socialism is. Um, I do think that uh, we should be shifting the Overton window uh, to where we can talk about allocating resources away from the police and into community services or putting more of the means of production uh, and more collective bargaining power in the hands of workers in addition to uh, strengthening radically strengthening our uh, welfare state here in the u.s to where people understand like nobody you know for example nobody is under the impression when it comes to universal health care that we think that it's a uh, what would be termed by a lot of people as a free lunch. Everybody understands 
everybody that understands this issue knows that we're talking about a, a tax-based thing um, that would ultimately save people money um, over what they're paying now with private insurance. Um, even, and this is something that a lot of people pointed to. Uh, a couple of years ago, an institute that was actually funded by Elements, the Koch brothers, did a study on uh, the monetary effects of a universal health care policy in this country. And they came up with the figure that it would actually save us $10 trillion. You know, we spend more on healthcare per capita in this country than anywhere else in the world. Um, and, you know, most Europeans, most people from, you know, Japan or, you know, Korea would look at us and think like, what? They, they look at our healthcare plans and like, what, what is this? You know, this is so complicated to navigate. Uh, you know, whereas in our countries, we have this system that's set up that uh, functions and we, you know, we don't have to worry about plan B, plan C, you know. Uh, and, I, and this is something that um, Bernie Sanders even alluded to at one point when, uh, you know, obviously he, he lives in Vermont and he's like, listen, I've been to Montreal. It's not a communist society up there. They have health care. It functions. Um, and this is something that I think the United States easily has has the resources to implement. Um, I think that a lot of the reason why we don't get a lot of these social reforms is because of private interests um, and the insurance industry and the pharmaceutical industry, because ultimately they would lose profit. So yeah, I know I know I went on a whole tangent about healthcare there for a moment, um, but that just kind of leads into the larger issue, you know when it comes to uh, our development as a country and how, you know, we, we could uh, have a more collectivized economy, if not for our, our the, the sort of dialogue that's been polluted um, over the past 50 years. Yeah, no, I, under, I understand what you're saying. And, um, and no, you point out how actually like what I guess Bernie Sanders, the socialism, you know, the policies he's talking about, if you go to a country in Europe, they're going to say that's not socialist, you know, um, and here it's like taboo. And, th and that's why I ask you about the messaging, because it almost seems like, you know, if you're in a different country, this wouldn't be a big deal. But here it's like throwing fuel on a fire that you don't even need to. But so that that's why I push so much on that. Um, and one of the last things I want to touch on is what you were just talking about, healthcare. There's a lot of issues where Democrats seem to be more with what ma the majority of people think in the country, whether it's universal or not. Uh, most people in the U.S. say, you know what, we need to have affordable health care. That's something Democrats champion. Most people also agree with guns. Um, you know, if nothing else, you should have to complete a background check because if you can't pass a background check, you shouldn't have a gun. Most people agree with that. And same thing with, you know, Jeff Bezos and others paying more in taxes and not paying less than like normal middle-class people. You know, there's all this public support for not all, but a lot of liberal ideas, but it hasn't really been turned into a blue wave locally, nationally, you know, you see some progress, but how does the Democratic Party turn all the support a lot of its ideas have into actually having like political power? You know, I think that's a really tough question um, that people in politics have pondered for a long time, because ultimately, you know, every cycle 
um, you're trying to galvanize all the support people have for your issues into electoral success. And in a lot of cases, it, it, it does work, um, but our system is so heavily weighted towards uh, sort of representing Republicans in a lot of cases. I mean, so for example, in Wisconsin, right, the last cycle, um, Democrats won the popular majority um, of state legislature votes. Uh, however, the state legislature in Wisconsin is a Republican majority. Um, that kind of goes into gerrymandering. And again, we, you know, we brought this up with the Senate, right, where rural states have a weighted advantage in the Senate, um, you know, because of the way that it works. We're, you know, a California, a state with, I, I don't even know the number now, what is it, like 60 something million? Yeah, I, I don't even know. I, I'm not even sure. <laughs> California has the same amount of senators as Wyoming uh, with around 500, 600,000 people. A state which, by the way, has less people than Washington, D.C. So, you know, I think it is rough. I think that um, the way you would make this a more, and when I say democratic, I don't mean like in terms of the political party, the Democrat, I mean, it's in terms of more democratic society, um, you really would have to reform the way that elections work and the way that districting works in this country. You know, I think that um, the constitution, um, you know, though it is a very flawed document, uh, I think it's quite antiquated in, you know, in its day, it was revolutionary, you know, despite the fact that our society maintained slaves and perpetuated a genocide against the indigenous people in this country, you know, in its, in its day, it was sort of a founding uh, framework for building a liberal democracy, even though that's not really what we had at that time. Um, I think that uh, now you know, it, it, it is worth us as a society sort of re-evaluating what that document is, uh, the way that our government works, because we, we could do a lot better um, in terms of governance, you know. For example, the number of people in the House is around, it's around one member for 500,000, 700,000 some people, whereas you know, in, in a lot of other countries, you see a lot more uh, representation um, for their population, you know. In the UK, a country smaller than ours, they have, I think, like 680 people. Forgive me, audience, if, if I'm getting that number wrong. But they, but they do have a larger uh, lower house than we do uh, for a country smaller than ours, you know. So I think that it is worth us looking into the reforming the way the Senate works and expanding the House of Representatives to potentially even a thousand people, which is something that's not unheard of and would definitely be proportionate for our society, you know. Um, so I know that, I mean, that's certainly a lofty answer. You know, it's, it's definitely, none of these are, are easy things to accomplish because obviously reforming the Constitution essentially takes a, uh, I, not, not exactly unanimous, but uh, pretty much a consensus amongst all of the states to change these things and, and to change it on, at a level that would make us a, a truly democratic society would be in no short terms revolutionary. So 
the, the, the short answer to your question is it, it's very difficult without uh, structural reforms to our democracy. Yeah, no, that's that's what I thought you might say, because, yeah, my next question was going to be actually, um, can you do that under this system? And you answered that. And no, I, I appreciate you trying to tackle that. I know that's a lot, but no, that's why I have you on. Um, and I'm not exactly quoting you here, but you pretty much said we can do better. And I don't know. I just find it interesting because all the people I have on here, they have different views, but there's a consensus even in the country, like with regards to elected officials, the terrible approval ratings sen senators and representatives have. It's obvious that the country thinks we can do better, but we can't agree with, you know, how, what is better and how do we get there? Um, I yeah. don't know. It's weird, but. Yeah. You know, it is uh, certainly difficult. Um, I think we're, we're such a large country um, with so many different ideologies that it's like, you know, how do you convince people um, to make these huge reforms? Because, I mean, there's a significant amount of people in this country who would not let that happen, um, certainly at least within our lifetimes, you know, especially with the people in power, because by definition, the system is how those people stay in power. Um, and sort of keep our economic and political status quo. So it is, it, it is intensely difficult um, to figure out how to really solve these, these issues. And ultimately you kind of have to do it slowly on a state by state basis. And, you know, this is something, it, it's important to understand that all politics at the end of the day are local, right? things start on the local level and move upwards. And when a community or a group of communities is interested in something, they can make it happen. It just sort of takes mobilization. Yeah, no, exactly. What, no matter what people really want to see, you have to have conversations. It organize it. It does start locally. It doesn't matter anyone that in politics, if you talk to them, they'll pretty much tell you, you know, politics is local. And those are the changes that you notice more a lot of the time than federal. Um, so no, I, I think that's good to remember. You know, you've been tackling all these big topics um, kind of for the last hour or so. Is there anything you would just like to talk about or add to what we've touched on? Or maybe we haven't even talked about something you really want to get in. Well, you know, something that I really um, think is important for us as a society um, and for young people to be invested in is being a much uh, reevaluating critically uh, the economic order that we have in this country, you know, uh, critically evaluating uh, American capitalism um, and the ways that it, it sort of affects our lives and the ways that the people in power and the in, you know, the people at the top of sort of the wealth divide of this country keep themselves in power. And that is through breaking down uh, bargaining or collective bargaining in the forms of, of labor unions. You know, I think that's something that's important for us to address is the right to organize. You know, something that recently happened in the Supreme Court was they revoked the, some of the progress that Cesar Chavez made where people could not go onto uh, private farmlands uh, to reach out to farm workers to organize. 
because it, it was considered a breach of private property by them. Um, and the heavily weighted, conservatively weighted Supreme Court agreed with that assessment. I think it's important that we pay attention to the PRO Act, uh, something that will enable every workplace in this country to be able to organize um, and sort of bring back uh, the collective bargaining to win more labor victories. Um, you know, I mean, like, so for example, inflation in this country has continued to rise, but wages have not. And obviously, you know, obviously I don't have the graph right in front of me, but um, this is something that's demonstrably true, uh, where the rich genuinely do keep getting richer and the poor genuinely do keep getting poorer. And as a society, uh, I think a lot of the times we're kind of encouraged to ignore that and not do anything about it. So that, that's something that, that's important to me as an issue, you know, workers' rights and, and advocating for the working class. Yeah, no, I think it's an idea most people can get behind. Um, once again, people won't agree with why that is or how we fix it, but um, I don't know. Who knows? I think there's a growing um, consensus amongst even a lot of young people. You see it from, and I don't know how this results in any change because people are going to vote for different people, but from even like Trump supporters to all across the spectrum to even like Bernie Sanders, people agree that sentiment about elites and the wealthy getting away with things and, you know, not paying their fair share. And it's just, how do you, how do you generate that into some real change? So yeah, fascinating issue. Um, but yeah, no, I really appreciate you being on um, Solomon. I know we talked about a lot, um, but you were game for it all, which I really appreciate. Thank you very much for being on the show. It was, it was a pleasure. Oh, anytime. You know, I, I really appreciate the opportunity. I'm, I'm glad we could talk about this stuff. It was, a, it, was, it was a real pleasure on my end. Thanks for listening to my talk with Solomon. A lot of politics today consists of resistance and obstruction. But this conversation gives a glimpse of what those on the left believe is worth fighting for. Be sure to subscribe to Gray Area wherever you get your podcasts and follow the show on Twitter at with area, as well as on Instagram at gray area with Jacob Owens. Tune in next week when I talk with a guest about MAGA.